what's your title or like what do you like to go by? Over there? Over anywhere. Oh, okay. You can be wherever you want to be today. Oh, I go as Bo all the time. Well, you mean talking about in the business? Yeah. The title they gave me over there is called Brand Builder. Brand Builder? Okay. Which could be anything from, you know, sweeping the floors to <laughs> leading a VIP experience. <laughs> <laughs> you, take, you take it a bunch of different foot, diff directions then, can't you? Yeah, well, Eddie told me when Eddie Russell said, he, he was like, you know, basically when I started anything nobody else wanted to do is what Jimmy made me do. I'm like, I can relate. Yeah. I, I can feel you down there. <laughs> because now you're doing some. I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen, and I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Well, there's not many people in the bourbon industry that have a story quite like our guest today. And Bo Garrett, he wanted a better life than just working in the coal mines of eastern Kentucky where he grew up. So he picked up his guitar and left for Lexington in hopes to be discovered. And along the way, he met some key people that would change his life forever. And that's when he spent over 20 years on the road as the lead guitarist for Montgomery Gentry, and all the while being sponsored by Jim Beam. However, after the tragic passing of Troy Montgomery, it sent Bo to a dark place, and he just needed something. While having dinner with Fred No one night, he had a fateful run-in with Jimmy Russell, and he started giving tours at Wild Turkey, and discovered a new passion in bourbon, and has now become one of their esteemed brand builders where you can catch him posting all kinds of wild turkey history on his social pages. And after you hear this story today, you will see that Bo is the literal rock star of the bourbon world. With that, cheers everyone. Enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. Today's question comes from Patreon member Ed Gasser, who writes me on fredminnick.com. Do most distilleries reach their bourbon at proof that they believe it tastes best at or at the level that they think they can make the most money at? All right, Ed, this is a great question, and this is the type of question I live to answer because I have spent a great deal of time researching and studying taxes over the years. So let's break away from the contemporary moment of bourbon for a second. And let's like take a look at the at the sixties. And when you see tax increases, either in proof gallon or bottles or whatever, the, the taxes are are based on proof, like the proof level. And so proofs exist based on taxes. It's a measurement at which the government can tax. And so that's when you started seeing distillers jump away from bottled and bond and go to eighty six proof and then eighty proof. And so there, the, the lowering of proof was, was a cost reduction in a big way. And it was a gamble because uh, that's when you started seeing bourbon, bourbon fans kind of like drop like flies. Now, they were going to vodka, and there's a whole other thing. But I've always held to the belief that bourbon distillers kind of got away from who they were, which was 100 proof to 107 proof, really good whiskey. And they also changed their barrel entry proof. And so I think quality started changing in the 1960s and early 1970s for that consumer base. Now, jump forward to today. All those proofs, those 80-proof products like Beam and, uh, and Jack Daniels, uh, they've been 80-proof for so long that, you know, they're not going back. 
Maker's Mark tried to change their proof from 90 proof to uh, 84, and that was to stretch their bottles out more, and that happened in 2013, and there was such a, a boycott on that that they reverted it back in within eight days or something like that. So when when a brand builds up a consumer base based on proof, they tend to stick with it. They don't really mess around with it. Now today, the modern products that are coming out, it is more cost prohibitive to release something at higher proof. If, if the bourbon brands wanted to make a ton of money, what they would be doing is basically putting everything out at 80 proof. So that tells me, because if you put it out at 80 proof and you sell a bunch of them, you have less costs and then you have more volume. So you make more money. So that tells me that the, all the brands you see coming out, definitely above 90 proof, they're doing it based on taste versus profitability. However, the trends at hand are getting a little bit back to the old days in that we're seeing like, you know, there's been, well, I think we've kind of hit the cliff on the cash strength releases and you're starting to see consumers really want that sweet spot between 100 and 107 proof. So that's why you're starting to see a lot of brands like proof down a little bit, a little bit below 110 proof. So I think that uh, we are getting back to where bourbon was and you're also still going to have a, uh, a ton of cash strength products out there. But to answer your question, Ed, I believe that they are releasing things at what they think is the best taste for their product. I don't think it is to make the most money because if they wanted to make more money off of the products, they would be releasing at lower proofs and charging the same amount. For example, Basil Hayden is probably the most profitable bourbon from the major distilleries. It's 80 proof. It's a nice packaging. They give a little bit of marketing to it, but the the cost, the tax costs, and a few other things to that product is much lower than, say, Booker's. So uh, that's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. If you want to send a great question like Ed, hit me up on uh, fredminnick.com and uh, let me know your thoughts. Until next week, cheers. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky. And you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. 
And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 000 Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of Bourbon. It's Kenny here today, and we're going to be talking to a new person that's come to the podcast, but this was a name that came through a lot of different recommendations. We've, of course, had a lot of people from Wild Turkey on, of course, all the Russells and Joanne and Bruce and Eddie and Jimmy. We've also had one of our fans' favorites out there. We've had David Jennings from Rare Bird 101. He was like, hey, you got to go talk to Bo. All right, well... Let's let's talk to Bo. Let's see let's see what we can bring Bo on to talk about. And the more I dug into learning about Bo, I, I I got really enamored with what he posts on social media all the time. You're doing a lot of things of finding archives and really posting like really cool things that people didn't know about wild turkey way back in the day. So I kind of got really enthralled with that, and I said, "This is going to be a a really great conversation of just where this guy has been and what he's doing now inside of." the distillery and kind of how we kind of talked before we started here and he's, he's either sweeping floors or doing stuff that Eddie doesn't want to do anymore. So, <laughs> so we'll be able to talk about a little bit of that. So uh, you've heard him laugh, but today on the show, we have Bo Garrett. They call him the brand builder at Wild Turkey, but today he's just Bo. So Bo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So before we start talking about wild turkey or whiskey or kind of anything like that, kind of talk about you a little bit. You had mentioned before we started recording that you kind of grew up in the mountains in Kentucky. Kind of talk about your your growing up and then was there alcohol influence? Like any, there's, there, you threw a word out there at one point called moonshine. It's a kind of talk about where uh, your, your kind of history there. Yeah, um, I'm born and raised in Kentucky, been here my whole life. Actually born and raised up in the eastern part of Kentucky, up in the mountains. So true hillbilly born and raised at least you own it right yeah I, i'm proud of <laughs> wearing it like a badge of courage now at this point but there was some alcohol involved uh my grandfather was a moonshiner so that's where i kind of got the idea of oh you can you know if you got sugar water and yeast you can get some alcohol out of that so that's kind of how it all came about uh, of course he was those old school shiners, so he had no idea what the chemistry was behind any of that. No, no hearts, tails. It's just uh, if I asked him one time how you knew when to separate the heads, how how much of that are you going to separate? What did you call the heads? And he was like, "Well, if that jar gets about that full, I'm gonna throw it away." And I'm like, <laughs> "What if I'm not using that jar? That makes I don't know what's going to happen then." So that was those were the kind of things. So for me, the idea wasn't a foreign concept, but learning the chemistry behind it and getting deeper in that that's been the coolest thing for me. Uh, but I left up there late twenties, early thirties, something like that. Oh, so you were around it for, for quite some time. Oh, I was up there for a long time and worked in the coal mines for a couple of years, actually two years into that. I saw that was not what not, I wanted to not do. Not the life for you. <laughs> yeah. The checks were good, but it wasn't worth what was going to happen to my body long haul. So I got out of that. Well, I mean, kind of to touch on that real quick, uh, did you kind of see the writing on the wall or did you, did you see other people getting sick from it? And you said like, I don't want to do this. Or is it kind of like that time, maybe not as well. They didn't know what the side effects were going to be or how did you know to get out? It's true. Uh, I think 
they didn't know how bad it was going to be, of course. Um, but I did see the toll it was taking on my dad, who did it for 25 years, how he was having so many back problems and knee problems and all of this other stuff that was going on with him. And I was like, you know, he's not that old guy. Because I was I was still a young man at that point. And I was like, he's not that old. And he's already he's in like pretty broke down. Mid-50s or something and like that. Yeah, already starting to feel all those. And I'm like, mm, I don't think I want to be like that when I get that age. I didn't have a backup plan, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, other than maybe knowing how to distill a little bit, some sugar yeah, shine. But, but uh, yeah, we, we had one bootlegger in town. He ran out of a taxi stand, which is ironic because the town I was in, there's no need for a taxi. Yeah. <laughs> you could walk the entire town in five minutes. How many, so, stop, how many stop places did you have? Uh, there was one, actually. Okay. There literally, you always hear somebody say, I came from a, stop, a town with one spot. Like, well, that's what we had, one stoplight. But everybody knew that there was no taxis going out of our little town, you know. So I got a little older and wound up having a 1970 Chevelle. If you're a car guy, you know that those had a trunk big enough to hide small families in. <laughs> okay. So it had Cadillac springs on the back end, which would raise the back end of it up with those big heavy springs. So what you could do is you go to the next town over, which was wet, and you could load that trunk full. The car would sit level. And so were you were you running booze back and forth between county lines? Is that what you're trying to tell us? I don't know what the statute of limitations is on that. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was the only thing that he, you could get from them was uh, uh, early times or Schlitz beer. If you had some Jim Beam and Budweiser, you could make pretty good money. Mm -hmm. Just saying. Yeah. Okay. Now, here we go. So read between the lines if, yeah. you, if you can get the context there. All right. Yeah. And so this was in your... 20s 30s oh, yeah, when you're yeah. doing that when early mid 20s probably something like that okay yeah just trying to do what you can to make a buck had to because i didn't want to work in those mines and there, there's not a lot of opportunity up there i love where i'm from and it's always going to be home for me but it's kind of a forgotten area as far as opportunities for business and that kind of thing what was the what was the town called what was the city prestonsburg prestonsburg okay mm -hmm. yeah it's doing a lot better now but still with Coal mines were, was basically it. If you didn't work in the coal mines up there or you didn't have somebody in your family who owned a business, you, you weren't going to make much money in that area. Gotcha. I gotcha. So we're in your 20s, moving your 30s. What's the what's the next? Are you evading the law at this point? Or are you trying to trying to figure out what's, <laughs> what's next on your, your, no, your career? Honestly, I, uh, for some reason, decided that I wanted to be in the music business. And that was my passion. And it was my passion. I would sit in my bedroom and play and play and play guitar constantly. And uh, I thought, well, I'm not going to make it from up here. They're not going to come up this little holler and look for me. This isn't Nashville. Yeah, here. this is not Nashville. So I moved to Lexington, started playing the bar circuits there. And that was originally going to be a stepping stone to move on to Nashville before everything else just all of a sudden happened. So that was kind of cool. Mm -hmm. So going to Lexington, playing in the bar circuit, is there a certain genre that you were more geared towards or is it, what was your, what was your, yeah, kind of I came out of the mountains. Uh, I had been uh, doing a lot of heavy metal stuff, actually the whole thing, man, the hairspray, the spandex pants, it was all yeah. there. Yeah. And right before I left the Eastern part of the state, I was starting to get more into the country scene. So by the time I came to Lexington, I had honed in on my country chops and that kind of thing. And that's what I kind of wanted to do. Ironically, my goal was to at some point 
hopefully be playing in Lexington because I had heard John Michael Montgomery came into the bars all the time and would sit in with bands. You had to school me and probably other listeners. So who's John Michael Montgomery? John Michael Montgomery was like one of the biggest stars to come out of Lexington in the country scene. So my goal was to get seen by him. I was like, well, I'll show him that, you know, he might need another guitar player yeah, or something. You know, that was just in my mind's eye thinking it was going to be that simple. It wasn't, but that's how I thought it was going to be. So that's kind of what got me into the country thing was coming down there and realizing that that was where the scene was for money. Do you remember what bars were still there at the time that you played in? The first one I ever played was called the New Circle Inn. No longer there. I played the Congress Inn. We referred to that as the Dungeon. Okay. I'm guessing you played in the basement. It, down these stairs, it was one of those bars that if you didn't have a gun or a knife when you showed up, they'd give you one at the door. <laughs> uh, that kind of area. I played up all of them at some point. We were at Austin City for a little while, which is still there. And the Continental Inn, which is also gone. So a bunch of them. This, yeah. this has been a while back. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, none of those are ringing a bell. Uh, maybe maybe Austin, but yeah, there's, because I, I did a, I did my stint at UK, so I, okay. remember, I remember some things around Lexington, even some Probably things that I would- A1A? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I figured you might know that one, yeah. Uh, some of the other guys that I played with for so many years had played the A1A a bunch. Yeah, I think when I was there, it renamed to Avios, and I think, I don't even know if it's still around anymore, so, but I do remember my credit cards, when they used to get swiped, it would say A1A on it, so yeah. I, I do know that. Right. So I do know the location, for sure. Exactly. So you were kind of going around the Lexington circuit, was there ever a, a next phase for that? What happened with the music career? It accidentally took off. <laughs> I, totally, Yeah. It's the, um, is that the best, worst thing that could happen? It is the absolute most unbelievable scenario that I could have possibly imagined. I had become good friends with a guy by the name of Troy Gentry, and he and I became best friends. Later on, he'd introduced me to this other guy named Eddie Montgomery, which was also John Michael's brother. We all three just started hanging out. You know, I had a band of my own, and Troy would come and sit in with our band occasionally. You know, I had developed a polyp, so I couldn't front the band because I couldn't sing. Troy's like, oh, I'll come and help you out. So Troy was coming and sitting in fronting my band for me. Nice. And then we just became buddies and kept going on and on. And I was at the point where I thought, okay, this is not going to happen for me. I'm going to have to figure out something. So I'd gone back to night school for photography because I love photography as a hobby. That's one of the things I love to do. Troy comes over one time. I was living in a trailer park in, off Georgetown Road in Lexington. And Troy and I had dinner, his soon-to-be wife at that point, and my wife. And we uh, were talking, and Troy was like, tell you what, let's make a deal. He said, if anything good happens for either one of us, we'll do what we can to take the other one along. I was like, you know, I'm looking at this from this way. Troy was a really good-looking dude. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to ride coattails as much as you can. Exactly what I thought. I thought, okay, he's really good-looking, and he's got talent. I'm think this might be a good option to hang on to him like he didn't know that you were getting the better into that deal oh he, yeah it was, <laughs> it was totally way more likely that something good was going to happen for him and then eddie montgomery had the idea to do like a uh, the the big competition at that point in time was brooks and dunn and eddie was like man they've got no competition so he wanted to put something together to kind of make a run at that particular little circle in the country music business and uh, Troy comes to me and said, hey, we're going to put this thing together and see if something happens. We'd like for you to be part of it if you're interested. I'm like, 
nothing else was going on for me. So this was not like this was a okay, sure. This is what we played bank parking lots and car lots and ten and fifteen people at a time, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, that's kind of how you have to do. You have to start building up the audience and start from yep. start from the ground up. So they started going to Nashville and talking with record labels, and we did a bunch of showcases for different record labels, and that started looking pretty thin too because the label that signed Montgomery Gentry was the very last label to look at Montgomery Gentry. <laughs> Everybody was like, oh my God, I ain't touching this. They're way too wild for me. Is that what it was? That, 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 that the, music scene, scene, that the music yeah. scene at the time was just a little too wild? That oh, the scene was the world's beautiful and, and everybody's in love all the time. And uh, to quote Eddie on this, Eddie's like, I don't care how much you love her, you ain't that much in love every day of the week. <laughs> so... He wanted, and they wanted to do something more toward the Southern Rock vein. Nobody was doing that. So it wound up being the best thing in the world for us. Kind of owned that niche. Yeah, that label that signed us. I remember the first gold record party when the first record went gold. I remember the president of the record label saying, I didn't know what I'd gotten myself into. I go to this bar in Lexington to see these guys play. He said, it was showtime. They come out of the dressing room. He said, every one of them had a whiskey in one hand and a cigarette in the other one and i'm like why am i even here yeah but he it wound up going really well for us so you go and you get your first gold album mm -hmm. what was what was kind of the next phase after that i mean it was is it tour dates is it everything like that we were already touring before the album would go we were touring before the album ever came out we did a show out in manhattan kansas with the first Official show, like you would say that Montgomery Gentry did an actual live show. It was a festival out in Manhattan, Kansas, and we took this old bus, man. The toilet leaked, and you didn't want to get out of the out of your bunk without your shoes on. <laughs> it was that kind of accommodations for us back then, but uh, that was how it all got started. And we just busted our butts on the road. You remember your your best and your worst tour experience? That might have been the worst. Uh, <laughs> Uh, as far as the did, best, did, it was did, a, did the buses get better? Oh, way better. I okay. mean, we wound up with the Star Trek doors. There was shoom, shoom, those nice. kind of things. It was really cool. Yeah. They got way better and more of them, which gave you more space to spread out. But that was probably the worst trip we ever took. It was the very first one. It was like, oh, this is what we've doing this for. Okay. Now I get it. Yeah. So it was interesting. Yeah. So talk about just life on the road. Do you, do you miss it at all when you, when you look back at that time? I miss those guys a lot. Obviously, with losing Troy in that helicopter accident, that that I miss him every day of the week because of that thing happening, you know. But I miss being on stage with the guys. I do not miss the travel part. No. I don't miss that at all. It's tough. The older you get, the harder those buses are to sleep on. Four o'clock in the morning, lobby calls when you're doing a television appearance. you got to be in the lobby at four o'clock. Like, yeah, I'm ready to play music at seven. Sure. I don't miss that kind of stuff. You know, I miss the actual playing part though a lot. What was your guitar choice? I wound up, actually, we, we did an endorsement deal with Gibson Guitars. And um, ironically, the album that was getting ready to come out, most of the guitars that got played on the album were Fenders, Stratocasters and Telecasters. So I got a hold of my Gibson rep and I'm like, man, have you got anything that I can even get close to these album tones with. I said, because, you know, a Les Paul is a Les Paul. And that's what it sounds like. You, you can't make that sound like a Fender. It's not possible. And he said, well, we've got this one. He said, maybe a Firebird. He said, uh, 
we've got one that we're getting ready to introduce. Would you be interested in looking at it? And I was like, sure. Yeah. I'll play with a new toy. Yeah. He brings it over. I start to play it. He goes, now, this is a limited thing right now. We haven't introduced them. We're thinking about introducing them later on. So rather than do it from, it came from the custom shop. So rather than doing a cherry wood finish, they made one from cherry wood. And it was heavy as lead, but I played that thing for 20-some <laughs> years. Lo and behold, they canceled the whole idea. They had actually made 10 of those guitars, and I've got one of them. And well, that's why your handle is Firebird that's Bow. exactly right. A lot of people think it's the car, but I had one of those too, but it, <laughs> it was actually the guitar. Yeah. So you got one of 10 guitars, but mm -hmm. you said you played that for, for 20 years wow. while you were doing it. Yeah. So it's it's held the test of time then. Oh, it's it's... It's beat up and banged up. It's like me, man. Beat up and banged up, but it's still still going. Yeah. So I want to keep talking a little bit about the, the music career here because this is sort of, it opened a lot of doors for you. Mm -hmm. How long were you on the road and, and on the band and everything like that? And kind of when did that all start dialing back? I was on the road as, as part of Montgomery Gentry from 2009. No, I'm sorry, from 1999 until... Let's see, this is 22. I've been off the road about three or four years now, something like that. Yeah. Okay. So it's been relatively recent. Though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I, I did two years after we lost Troy in the accident. I did two more years on the road. And there's that, that was one of those deals where I was just like, you know, we were in New Jersey of all places when that happened. So he was nowhere near his family when he was just like, poof, he's gone. You know, and I was like, yeah, maybe time to go home. Stay with mom and the dogs for a while. Start working on a different mm -hmm. kind of career. But I mean, it's amazing to kind of hear about playing in the you know, bars in Lexington. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're on stage with Montgomery Gentry. Mm -hmm. Stadium, football stadiums. We've done that. That was crazy. It was cool, but it was still like a bizarre experience. Yeah. And do you still keep in touch with a lot of those guys? Like, Oh, yeah. I text with Eddie all the time. And he'll he'll text me like, you ready to come back to work? <laughs> I'm like, you ready to fly me to the shows? Yeah. Like, We're done with the buses. Yeah. I, need, I need my PJ now. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm lazy now, man. But yeah, I talked with him all the time. Um, texted with a couple of the other guys uh, yesterday, as a matter of fact. So yeah, really we stay in very close contact. Yeah. It's your family, man. Yeah, it really is. I mean, we spent 20 odd years with some people like it really does become and probably best friends probably seen birthdays and weddings and divorces and all that sort of stuff and all of them together yeah yeah so i mean you know one more thing about just kind of staying on the music yeah. thing for a little bit you know i, I kind of want to get an idea of some other like highlights that people probably don't know about the behind the scenes of of all this can mm -hmm. you kind of share just something that was a, a really cool memory that you had with you know all these people we had so many because we traveled the whole world. So it was like so many every day was a new experience. I think one experience, especially for people who might've followed Montgomery Gentry and the kind of music we were doing, uh, we were a party band and it was all about having a good time. That's what we were about. We were referred to at one point as, uh, the motley crew of country music. Nice. Uh, and then John Sally, the NBA player, he came up to us. We were doing the best damn sports show and when the Super Bowl was in Jacksonville, and we were there as a musical guest. And John Sally comes up out of nowhere. This is a guy you don't expect to, to know us, for sure. He walks up, and I remember he threw one arm around me and one arm around whoever was standing on the other side. And he goes, I want to tell you guys something. He said, I like you guys. He said, you're like the Wu-Tang of country music. <laughs> Wu-Tang. <laughs> so I was like, I think that's a compliment. Dude. Yeah. Um, but probably the most unique experience for me, and one that always sticks out for me, 
was an appearance we made with Maya Angelou. We had released a song called Some People Change. And it was about what you probably expect it to be like. People who changed from a way of life that was not good. Like they made that change and realized I need to be somebody different. That's what the song was about. I have no earthly idea how this song, we released a video on it. I have no idea how this song got to her, but she was making an appearance and asked if we would come and play that song at her event. So that was one of the coolest things for me. It's like, holy cow, I got to meet Maya Angelou. That, that was a big deal, you know, because I think now she's getting ready to put her on on U.S. currency. So I was like, hey, that's the only person I've ever met that was on currency. But she was super sweet. And that was an out-of-the-box kind of experience for us to get to do something like that. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, I'm sure you've probably met a lot of other big names along the way and stuff like that, yeah. too. Yeah, most of them were celebrities for some sort of uh, talent. She was one that was just, for me, celebrity status, obviously. icon Exactly. Yes. Icon. That's even better word. Yeah, icon. But it wasn't for like, she had a talent, but it was, it was a talent with people. So that was why it was so cool to meet her. Mm -hmm. So as you're exiting the, the band, were you holding interviews for people that are going to kind of take your position and you get to choose exactly like, ah, oh, they're, they're not going to cut the muscle. There are no bow on this. <laughs> well, it wound up being a situation where I leave the road and then COVID hits. So nobody's yeah. going on the road. So they had all kinds of time to replace me <laughs> <laughs> at that point in time. So that just wound up being that way that I leave the road and the next year nobody's touring. So. So you're trying to say you started all this? I hope not. <laughs> that was that was like. But you're going to a lot of countries apparently. So yeah, that's true. We were. <laughs> that's true. Never thought about that part. No, but we're not, we're not going to put that kind of blame on uh, you. No, no, no. We we got into enough trouble on our own. We didn't didn't need to do that one. You need more of that. Yeah, well, that's cool. I mean, I think it's it's definitely one of the more unique backgrounds that you're going to find in the bourbon industry. I don't think anybody else is going to have that sort of level of history. Yeah, well, the the history of the both of them go together, ironically, is the funny thing about how I even got into it. I mean, it was a tour sponsorship. That's how I literally got into drinking better bourbons, learning more about bourbon, and those kind of things uh, was through Booker. Booker, no. We were sponsored by Jim Beam for about 19 years. That was our sponsor. The buses, the trucks, all of it had Jim. We had huge Jim Beam inflatable bottles on each side of the stage that would blow up. Everything. Troy had guitars. Barrels were on stage with us. It was a longstanding partnership, which turned into family. You know, I'd never tasted Booker's before until Booker. He he was actually the guy I tasted it with. Yeah, just the the whiskey with the cigarette hanging out. Just you kind of upgraded your your lifestyle. I started to realize, hey, wait, there's some really good stuff out there that I didn't know anything about. So that with them being a, a tour sponsor for so many years and just becoming family with those people, like Fred to this day is one of the best people. He I he's like a brother to me, man. And I saw Freddie growing up. My wife said that Freddie and I grew up together, even though I'm like 30 <laughs> years older than him. <laughs> You're on your own bourbon journey at the yeah, same time. Yeah, to say, a yeah. different kind, yeah. yeah. So they sponsored us for a lot of years, and that's how that whole, the parallels came in right there. I was like, I, if I wanted to ask a question, so what, what are you doing here, Fred? What's, what's the deal with this? He'd answer those for me. Can you remember some of those 
early conversations with him, kind of like pick pick his brain and try to figure out what what what's going on here. Like, why why do I like this so much? <laughs> Not really. I, I don't. A lot of those were in the at the point we were drinking Knob Creek or Jim Beam when we yeah. had those conversations. But he he was always there. He's still there for me this day. If, like I don't understand this, and if I text him, he'll oh well, this is what's happening here. Fred Freddie will do that. Freddie's answered questions for me too. And they would be on the road with you all too sometimes, or they would come out to shows. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. they'd come out to shows. Booker would come out occasionally, but we weren't. We not. I was never. I never got the the opportunity to become as close with Booker as I was with Fred and Freddie, because he was only with us for like two years after we started working with him. But he would come out sometimes too. He was. He was a piece of work. Yeah, well, they I know they love their rock shows and stuff like that. I know they, oh, they yeah. had a history of kid rock and stuff like that, too. Yeah. So they've, they've, they definitely have some sort of way that they gravitate towards folks like you and, and try, to make a, try to make a party out of any situation. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it was awesome. Obviously, we had some product that came along with that deal, too. So that was a great thing as well. I mean, is that kind of how you, you feel like you're your bourbon journey kind of really started where you started finding little nuances in whiskey and not just, it's not always just for the effect. I do. I, I do because that's when that was like some of those questions, like Fred was the guy that taught me about the Kentucky chew and that kind of thing. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He was one that taught me that. And that's when I, Hey, wait, yeah, you can taste other stuff in this, you know? So that, that kind of started it. I still feel like I don't have a very strong palate for finding some of that stuff, but I'm kind of like, Eddie said, I made a joke about Jimmy one day. He said, he tastes hot, cold, sweet, and sour. <laughs> That's me. Hey, I can taste like a master distiller now. Yeah. So um, it's growing. It's getting better. I just still have to dial it in even more. I just enjoy the bourbon, though. I don't even know if it's particular things I'm picking out. I'm probably one of the worst to ask that. What do you think? I think it's really good. Yeah. It's good, middle of the road, or, you know, it could. we'll just put it in the barrel <laughs> yeah. and age a little bit longer. You know, that's really good. But... Yeah, that is where it all got started, though, was hanging out with those guys. Do you feel like on the road, if those guys weren't there, were you still sipping whiskey and kind of like refining, kind of trying to taste it and trying to find a little more things, or is it no. still just a party scene it for you? It's still been a party, yeah. yeah. I did not, not been introduced to, to better bourbons and realized there was more to it than just shooting it. You yeah. Know? So that, that definitely helped us a lot, or helped me. I would say I followed, I chased that rabbit down the hole farther than any of the other guys did because it started to become interesting to me. I'm sure going back to some with my grandfather too, you know, about they sent us uh, a bottle of that ghost when it first came out. And I tried this like, that tastes like moonshine. Yeah. The, the, I remember that the Jim Beam ghost whiskey yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah. Was like, Just tastes, clear. Yeah. It tastes like shine. That's, that's when we got to understanding the, the difference in the two things. And be like, hey, all I had to do was put it in a barrel the entire time and I could turn it brown. And Exactly. Yeah, maybe, maybe it wouldn't just be all sugar shine. Yeah, it wouldn't have been so hot. <laughs> but well, Let's go. Hey, cool. I mean, it's like I said, the, the background here is really amazing. So as you, you kind of progress and, and find all this, uh, so it sounds like you you definitely took a little bit more of a akin to finding bourbon than the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. Do you look back at this now and think, Gosh, I wish I would have known more and could have gone bourbon hunting out on the road and found a lot of gems back then. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point-of-sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point-of-sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone. Transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S dot com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription. As you, you kind of progress and find all this, uh, so it sounds like you you definitely took a little bit more of a akin to finding bourbon than the rest of the band. Mm-hmm. Do you look back at this now and think, gosh, I wish I would have known more and could have gone bourbon hunting out on the road and found a lot of gems back then? Knowing what I know now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wish I had known more about it back then than I do now. Last couple of years on the roads when I had really started, because I was kind of the last couple of years on the road, I was like doing some part-time stuff at Turkey, like tour guide work at Turkey, and then going back on the road on the weekends for the last couple of years there. So then I did do that. I was like, I want to go over here to this little liquor store across the road, because you never know what's going to be in there. Yeah. And uh, so you find stuff that you wouldn't believe you found in there, you know. Well, before we hop on to the next subject, do you do you have your favorite kind of hunting story on the road? Did you find something that you're like, all right, yeah, add this one to the collection? I, found, I remember finding a, 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 we were in Denver, Colorado, and there was a liquor store really close to the bar we were playing. I was like, I want to go over and check this place out because I'd heard a lot about it. It's actually called Applejack. I remember it that well because they like they had like decades. They had a bottle of decades in there just sitting there. There was dust on the top of it like you would expect in a place that wasn't really aware of what that yeah. was, you know. And uh, they had it for just a little over $100. And I'm like, I'll take that because <laughs> I know what that sold for. So, yeah, I'll take that right now. It's, that was my favorite find as far as the price being like, they're selling it for what? Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So you had mentioned already that towards sort of the end when you're on the road, you take a break and you actually go and be a tour guide over at mm-hmm. Wild Turkey. What made you want to go do that? Just can't sit still? It, it was it was kind of one of those things. I'm not a good I'm not a good person at just sitting and doing nothing. I don't need to be that person for, for sure. You know, <laughs> the old idle hands is the devil's playground. And what had happened was after we lost Troy in that accident, my wife was actually the one that uh, came to me and, and she's like, you're, you're getting in a pretty dark spot. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, you're just, the depression's kicking in. I'm like, I go to the gym every day, spend a couple hours in the gym. She said, that's it. She said, you sit in the dark with the TV the rest of the time. And I started thinking about it and I'm like, whoa, 
you're right. She's like, you need to get out and do something. It's like the next day or something. And I had met Jimmy Russell. I had met him over at Fred's house. (laughs) I was over there at Fred's for dinner one evening and Jimmy and I met. So my wife goes, did you know that Fred's looking or that Jimmy's looking for a tour guide over there? I was like, I'm pretty sure Jimmy's not looking for anybody, (laughs) but they might be hiring one. And I just went over there to see what was going on. And I was like, this might be fun. And fortunately, they they asked me to come on board. And man, that was it. I was all in. Because then I could start digging really deep. You know, you get to see Jimmy all the time. And he's wonderful about answering questions about the history of the place, his history, those kind of things. Those are the conversations that I love. It was kind of drinking from a fire hose on day one, saying we're going to we're going to set you up with Jimmy. You're going to walk around with him. You're going to kind of understand, like, how was, how was, like, the training to to kind of go into this? Well, the the training was basically I was to shadow somebody who had already worked there and already had had the the layout of the tour down and the, the script, so to speak, down. So that was how it got started to get me into it. Anything that I'm passionate about, I've never been able to halfway do it. I don't have that part of me thinks, oh, I'm okay with this. Yeah. I'm, there's I'm, no, there's no such thing as contention. Yeah. I've yeah. done enough. Yeah. No, 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 no. There's no such thing. Exactly. So I wanted to learn more. A lot of my experiences at distilleries up before that were like, a lot of times with, with the tour guide experience, what you're going to get is somebody who's, they're filling in a spot in their life, so to speak. It's not a passion for the bourbon. So, I wanted to be somebody when they when they wanted to ask a question about the process. I could be like, "Oh yeah, I know the answer." To yeah, that. I can help you. I think. Exactly. So that's what made me want to keep digging and digging and learn more and learn more about it. So that if somebody asked me a question, you know, I'd be like, "Oh yeah, no, I can tell you exactly what we're doing there, and I can tell you what this does." And so, for me, that was when it really got a lot of fun. Yeah, when it kind of kicked in high gear, learned a lot more. What was the the sort of next phase of that? So, of course, you show up and you do your sort of nine to five doing tours, but I'm sure you were kind of like, all right, well, there's got to be, how can I go deeper with this? Mm -hmm. When I started getting to finally do the first couple of VIP things, that that was, I was like, okay, this is good. This means they're starting to trust me now. (laughs) And then when I had, I was leading a tasting experience up in the Angels View up there, the, the big window looking over the river. I was leading a tasting experience, and all of a sudden I look over, I see movement out of the right side of my eye, and I look over, and it's Jimmy. And Jimmy comes up into this tasting and sits down. And I'm like, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no pressure here. <laughs> <laughs> you played in a, a football stadium yeah. with tens of hundreds of thousands of people, yeah. and now you got Jimmy Russell sitting there. Yeah, with only 15 people in the room, and I'm terrified now. So I led that tasting, and we got to the end of it, and Jimmy just stayed around with him and talked with him, laughing, and uh, he told me he thought I did a really good job. So I'm like, oh, that's a stamp of approval now. So for me, it was then... Doing more as in like, I realize there's an absence of um, social media is one of those things where people get a little, they get just enough information to make them dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Know? And it's like they, they've read a book and they can, I'm a master distiller. And you, by being around these men that I've been around and, and listening to them and talking with them, you'd be like, I, I think there's a spot for people who want to know what these guys 
said about how it's done. You know, this is what we're doing because that's what Eddie said we're doing. It's just not in the manual. No, it's not in the manual. It's not in the tour script. And my life has never been very scripted. (laughs) So I was learning all this stuff and I'd start to put it into my tour. (laughs) And in case you're wondering, (laughs) this actually does this. Can you give an example of something like that, that you you kind of took a little nugget information and, and baked it into your experience? The steel itself, you know, you'll hear the whole, you're going to pump it in the top and it has to work. It's, you know, I learned why is, why is copper important? That's, I wanted to, why do they all use copper? I started looking into that. Uh, we'll share the, some of those findings with our listeners. Well, the copper was, I don't know when it happened as far as like when somebody figured out it was advantageous. <laughs> when I asked Jimmy why, why they started out using copper, he said, because stainless steel was too expensive. <laughs> now uh, that's kind of flipped around. It? It's yeah. completely the opposite now. I realized that when the mash was going through the steel, that there was a sulfurous content that would come off. And lo and behold, and these old guys, I guarantee you, had no idea when they were using copper steels, they were making better whiskey. The sulfurous stuff would attach itself to copper. I always think of rotten eggs is what I think of, but it wouldn't attach itself to stainless steel. So the actual product coming off was better. I thought that was a really interesting little tidbit that you, I've never heard anybody else share with people. Yeah. So really cool. Yeah. Just anything like that I can find out, I try to share it with them. So you've been sponging off of Jimmy and Eddie for a while now. Yes. And and being able to do that. And I think one of the cool things that, you know, you had mentioned about the social media side of things is that you are also, I guess, as a brand builder now, I see a lot of things that you're finding in archives and you're sharing this information on social media. What made you want to go and start doing a, around that sort of path? Reading the room when people are there, the doing the tours you're doing. I've learned now, like I was saying, when I would learn something about the process, I couldn't wait to share that with people. Well, sometimes you get a big group of people. There might be one person who enjoyed that. Yeah. <laughs> and the rest of them just want to hear. So uh, when did Jimmy get here? Yeah. Um, is Jimmy <laughs> how, fast, how fast can we get through this? Yeah. Is Jimmy downstairs? Uh, but you have to read the room. But I did realize there's a certain amount of people who are interested in that kind of stuff. And it's not out there. You know, you don't get that from the corporate entities in these brands. They don't give you that as much as they do the polished thing they want you to see now. And I think that I, I love history. And it just so happens that I'm fortunate enough that there's enough bourbon nerds like myself who also do. So Yeah, you're kind of talking to my audience right now. That's that's exactly what it is. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah, because I, I love that kind of stuff. And I think I think that's important because I don't know, man. I, I I tend to believe that bourbon is one of the things that actually built Kentucky. If you stop and look at it, obviously the horses, but. Uh, <laughs> well, at least now it's definitely one of the, the things that Kentucky's known for. It's oh, not, yeah. And it's not just chicken anymore. Yeah. I, t- I told a guy one day, he was talking about the Kentucky Derby. He said, so you do more than horses. I said, oh, we do that once a year. We make bourbon every day. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to have to steal that one. <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> So as you're starting to dig through some of these archives, I know I've seen you post things of like the old sites, some old warehouses. Mm-hmm. Does it have information next to it? And you're kind of regurgitating that? Or are you going through and like asking Jimmy, like, do you, do you remember what this is? Both. Sometimes I'll find a little bit of context to go with it. And actually, you mentioned David earlier, uh, Rare Bird. 
that dude is a wealth of information, man. So if I can find something. He, I, get, he did write the book on it. He did write the book, literally. Uh, but a lot of times I'll go to Jimmy and say, do you know what this picture is right here, Jimmy? Oh, yeah. That used to be. Jimmy will say right over here. <laughs> Two clicks that way. <laughs> and like Bruce said one time before, Bruce said, I was asking Bruce about something. Jimmy said, he said, you have to understand when Jimmy says right over here, it was a different time then. He said, it could be the next thing that you'll come up on. He said, but it might be 20 miles away at the same time. <laughs> so I do ask Jimmy a lot of times like that, like the old Camp Nelson warehouses, the old Canada Dry Distilling, where was the distillery, those kind of things. And I found an old picture of the Kentucky River Distillery, which sat over there in Nicholasville, right down on the riverbank. And Jimmy's like, oh, yeah, that's that's where it was at. And then they would take it up on the hill to age it. And I was like, no kidding. And it's like, yep. He said, and if if you've ever, I, I posted a picture. I don't know if you saw it or not, but the picture I posted of the Kentucky River Distilling, it doesn't look like a distillery. Jimmy's like, what's that look like to you? I said, I don't know. It's a distillery. He said, wasn't supposed to be a distillery. It's supposed to be a hotel. Oh, okay. I was like, I totally see it. It looks like a hotel. And he said, yep, never used it as a hotel, so they made a distillery out of it. And then was that just lost to prohibition or something like that, or was that just— Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that that's what happened with it. I don't know at what point in time Canada Dry left over there, and then those warehouses started moving on and eventually became the holy grail of wild turkey. All those Camp Nelson warehouses, yeah. Man, all you got to do is to tell people it's a Camp Nelson bottle. They're good. They're on that. That's true. We do our fair share of picks over there. (laughs) When you hear Camp Nelson, your ears kind of perk up a little bit. Yeah, and and it's just, it's a lot farther away. So those barrels are going to sit there for a while. You don't have somebody over there every day. Mm -hmm. So I guess you had mentioned finding the, the one with a picture of, I think what you said was a Canada dry bottle. Or actually, it was a. I remember now because it was a Kentucky straight bourbon that said Canada Dry exactly on the on the bottle. Right. And you just found. I mean, that's I a, found that's a the pretty bottle cool. on the internet. Yeah, a picture on the internet. But when I I helped do some barrel inventory when COVID first hit, and as fate would have it, one of the places I was doing some of the barrel helping helping do barrel inventory. I don't have the knowledge to do all that, but. It's a big spreadsheet, right? Yeah, it was fun <laughs> yeah. for about 10 minutes, and then you realize 12,000 barrels later, they still look exactly like that first one you scanned. Um, but uh, when I showed up, and I could see very faintly on the side of the oh, warehouse A, you can still read Canada Dry Distilling on the side of it. So I thought that was super cool uh, when I found the old bottle on the internet. Like those, It's just like I said, I'll find one little thing, and I'll go down the rabbit hole to try to find something. Yeah. Uh, so that's how that picture that you saw came about. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty cool one. Any other ones that you found that you really stuck out that you said, like, this is a real real piece of history right here? Because I, I see all the time you post some cool things on, on Twitter and stuff like that. I, I love um, the picture and actually credit to David for the picture. I posted one yesterday. It was like circa 1905 of the distillery that became Wild Turkey. And we're talking about a place that doesn't look as big as my house. That's where it all got started at up there. And just the history of Jimmy to me is with him becoming a master distiller. Okay. One of my favorite little things to share with people, it it just destroys people's hearts to find out that Austin Nichols was not actually a distillery and they were sourcing bourbon. No, they didn't source. Yeah, they sourced wild turkey. Sorry. But one of those places was that distillery, but uh, that Jimmy gets to be a master distiller in 67 he didn't take over as the Jimmy of Wild Turkey until 71. That was still J.T.S. Brown. 
And a lot of people don't realize that little piece of Jimmy's history, that he was a master distiller for JTS Brown for a little while, too, there. I thought that was a cool little tidbit to find out. Yeah, no, he's he's definitely got quite the history and quite the past, and especially with bourbon. And now you're starting to write your own history with it, too. So it's really cool to kind of see you take a turn and, and really dive in headfirst with all this. I do love it. I enjoy it a lot. I've got a passion for Kentucky, for the product, for the people. I love Jimmy and Eddie and do anything in the world I could for them. And I feel like they'd be there if I needed them for anything, too. So that, that's kind of a hard, hard thing to pass up on. So what else are you doing as a, as a brand builder over at their Wild Turkey? Right now, we're not doing a whole lot with it being shut down. We have started doing premium experiences, like with the last Master's Keep that was released. There was experience that was done for that. Again, that's fun for me because the creative side gets to kick in when you get to put together the presentation. And I get to go on that hunt, like, where were these barrels? Where did they come from? You know, which ones are here? Which ones were there? What is this product? So those are fun for me to to do as well when they have a premium experience come up like that. Kind of doing a little your own barrel CSI exactly. Kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And hopefully once we get things open back up and the world gets back on its axis again, there might be some other good, cool experience offerings that might come available. We'll see how that all goes too. Oh, cool. And so what other kind of future do you have? Do you see yourself at Wild Turkey? I don't know. I would just, I, I just want to do what I can to make it better. My, I say better, like I, I don't have any, uh, <laughs> anything else. Good? I want yeah. to do the best that I can do to get more people aware of wild turkey being what it actually is versus what their perspective of it is. Everybody, when you say wild turkey, they think of 101. 101's really good bourbon. But when you drink it the way we did as kids, <laughs> it's, it's not the same thing. It's, yeah. it's a completely different approach to it, you know. So I, 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 if I, anything I could do to make the tourism experience better, when people show up to go, if you want to know something, you can ask and, and he'll know the answer. That's what I, I want to be that person in, in this thing and be, the, if you want to say, tour guide, that when they show up and they get a tour, well... I've asked this at four places and I can't get an answer. I want to be the one that's able to go, oh, okay, well, here's your answer. If that makes any sense to you. Oh, no, that makes sense. And just You kind of want to be the uh, the Freddie Johnson over there at Wild Turkey. Is that what you're... Oh, I don't know if I could ever be that. You don't, you don't think you're he, trying to, trying to go there? He's got his... Man, he's, he's a legend in his own right. <laughs> I don't know that I can get that far, but I wouldn't complain about it. <laughs> uh, for sure. Well, totally cool. Let's cheers to that then. So, I mean, I guess kind of last question is, do you see yourself picking up a guitar and maybe playing on stage again with uh, the band? You know, whether it's a reunion tour or whether it's uh, they just happen to be strolling through a city that you happen to be in and hop on stage? I could see if I was, if they were somewhere and I was there, I could see jumping up on stage for a song. I still play at home a lot. I still record like some of my own stuff and things like that. It's not very country, but it's, it's out there, like the, you make like a wild turkey tribute album. I, I wrote, I wrote a little thing. I was, I was gifted the most incredible gift in the world, a cigar box guitar that was made from a Russell's two thousand three box. Oh, nice! It and it sounds great. It's a really cool guitar. So I wrote this little piece and recorded. I'm going to try to actually record it in a studio, make it more professional sounding. And then uh, I had Jimmy sign the little guitar thing. I said, you got to sign this, man. I said, so he signed the side of it in a little piece of music. I wrote, I called it the Russell's Ramble. But 
Yeah, I still play. Still love to play. I, I do the anthem for a lot of UK sporting events. I know. I saw that uh, not too or recently mm-hmm. on the field doing the uh, the anthem. Yep, yeah, uh, the uh, veteran appreciation night at the UK football game. I did that. That was that was scarier to me than any show I've ever played because it was just me. Everybody in the entire stadium was quiet and listening to just me, and there was I couldn't make a mistake and look at one of the other guys and go, "That was that, him." That's him. Yeah, that's him. Where's the sound guy? We're living on him. <laughs> so, I'm going to be doing a lot more stuff like that with them, which is awesome. I love working with it. The UK has treated me like gold over there, man. They're good people. Well, they're going to give you an honorary doctorate or something like that too maybe maybe well, go for that they they, they had me a baseball jersey made so i'm good with that that's that, cool yeah that's cool i'll take that over doctor absolutely <laughs> absolutely but yeah it's it's a lot of fun i'm 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 just enjoying every second i'm given to be still sucking air so <laughs> <laughs> well good well hopefully i'll be able to come out there to wild turkey sometime and you give me a tour and i'll, I'll see what see what it's all about from you i you probably know all about it, but we'll laugh and have a good time anyway. I tell you what, you keep posting pictures like that. I keep learning new things on, on social media from you. Well, I appreciate that, Kenny. I appreciate that a lot. You got it. So, Bo, thank you again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure talking to you, learning more about your story, your your history. It's it's definitely one of the more unique ones that we've ever been able to capture on here and, and be able to share with, with everybody. So thank you for, for kind of coming on and lending your time to be able to do that. I really appreciate you asking. It's fun to finally be on this instead of just watching it. (laughs) There you go. So if people want to follow you, I know you're on Mm -hmm. Twitter. Are you on Instagram as well? I am. Same handle on Instagram as well. Okay. So it's firebird underscore bow. Is that what it was? Mm -mm. It's just firebird bow, all one word. All one word. So make sure you go and you follow him and you kind of, it's basically between him and rare bird is where you're going to get all your, your wild turkey musings for the the (laughs) day, the week. Exactly. A lot of good stuff there. So make sure you go and you follow Bo. Follow us as well. We're on all social medias facebook instagram twitter tiktok and uh what well, linkedin too we're on there too uh, and also subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts apple spotify iHeartRadio, radio you name it but with that cheers everybody we'll see you next week <laughs> <laughs>